A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Friday morning, the 26th of May. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. It's been a shocking 24 hours in Dundalk and we'll begin with some of the tragedy that people in the town are coming to terms with. Rory O'Murku, local Sinn Féin TD, is on the line. And a very good morning to you, Rory O'Murku, and thank you for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, news of the discovery of a deceased person on Wednesday evening trickled through yesterday. Details were scant yesterday and the story seemed somewhat uh, confusing uh, at times over the course of uh, the day but as uh, the day went on and indeed uh, as we went into yesterday evening Gardy confirmed that 62 year old woman uh, who has been named locally as Catherine Henry uh, had been murdered on Bridge Street in Dundee Dock. Very shocking for everybody uh, in the area and uh, indeed uh, I'm sure there'll be a lot of interest in what happened here. What's your understanding? It said uh, that she experienced uh, some severe injuries. She did and look obviously initially the Gowdy had carried out, or the the post-mortem had been carried out uh, and that wasn't released for operational reasons but we're now seeing in the public domain some of what we had all heard just in, you know, public discourse yesterday. And it looks like um, we're talking about what is an incredibly, you know, violent act. And uh, I think, and that the Gardaí have been talking to, you know, a person of interest in the case. So I'd like to think that this particular um, issue from an investigative point of view would be uh, brought to an end as soon as possible. I know the Garda Technical Bureau um, were involved and obviously doing all that's absolutely necessary from that point of view and that there was also um, door-to-door canvases being carried out. I would also ask anybody that has any information to ring the Gardaí in Dundalk or on the confidential line. I assume that would be on your uh, website or whatever afterwards anyway, Michael. 1-800-666-1 is uh, the confidential line. That's uh, the free phone guard, a 24-hour confidential line. You can ring and give information any time of the day. Obviously, 1-800-666-1. And, and the other number is 042-938-400. That's the station in Dundalk. So, like anybody with information, should just make sure that that's, that's passed on. Because mm. in, in fairness, but we're dealing with an absolute tragedy. Uh, I was actually canvassing yesterday evening in Dundalk. And sure, you can imagine the only conversation was the piece was in relation to all that had happened uh, through throughout the day. We obviously also had, you know, the tragic circumstances uh, 
of mm-hmm. uh, a young person that, that has been uh, found in, in the water. And unfortunately, some of the commentary online has not been helpful. I, I've spoken to um, that particular family and they've spoken about uh, their interaction with the Gardaí, which, you know, they said was, you know, absolutely, you know, top class. I know I spoke to the Gardaí in relation to a huge amount of work they had done in that particular case. Um, but the fact is there are people making comments that are in no way, in any way, shape or form verified and they're claiming that there's investigations, that there's people being arrested and all the rest of us. I would just ask people to refrain from that because it's absolutely not helpful. You're dealing with a family that's going through absolute trauma that has been through a very difficult time and they certainly don't need this sort of uh, unhelpful yeah, commentary. Absolutely and uh, maybe people listening to us uh, this morning you'd hope uh, people listening to this programme would be involved in that type of misinformation but maybe they'd speak to their family uh, particularly young people in the household uh, and say yeah. that this was a tragedy there's nothing to see here uh, because we also we also had the case of uh, a man who was unfortunately seriously injured and mm. um, I, I believe he's all right but going, you know facing obviously serious medical care um, and yeah, again I, I'm not sure that we needed to see all the imagery in relation to that that that, that we did see and, and look I, my, my heart goes out to all these families and I obviously wish that was that an incredible that was yeah. an, a, an incredible uh, tragedy um, you, you may argue that it was fate uh, you're walking down the street uh, as uh, that young man was on Clumbrassel Street yesterday and the building collapses on, on top of him uh, but questions will have to be asked there, won't there, about the structure of uh, that building and if that should have been foreseen? Well, in fairness, um, I, I, I'm sure the council and everybody else have looked at it. Uh, they've closed off that particular area. Um, in, fern- in, in fairness, I, I suppose we've all been had circumstances where, let's say, slates have fallen off our, our own roofs and, and you always you know, ask a question in, in relation to it. But you're talking about a building that may have had, you know, checks in, in the recent while. Mm. Uh, I'm sure all that due diligence uh, w- w- will will be done. Um, but unfortunately, it's, it's you're just dealing with something that is that is an act of God. I suppose it, it it actually asks you in relation to yourself. You say, how often do you check your house or your own building in relation to? You know, circumstances mm. like that. Maybe that's the question that we should be asking. Uh, should we be checking buildings more often, more frequently, uh, so that uh, this type of thing doesn't happen? Or yeah. is that realistic? I mean, you're you're saying it's an act of God, and I suppose that's what I was saying at the outset. You could look on it as an act of God, or you could be asking, uh, should we? be giving more attention to structures uh, in towns and villages uh, when uh, people are, are walking by like that? Uh, possibly. And I suppose the unfortunate thing, look, we've all had circumstances of, as I say, slates and other things falling off. Mm. And we've all been very lucky at times that no one, not even a vehicle or anything was close by. You know what I mean? So, uh Look, I, I, I think it's a case of um, it's unfortunate. We're also dealing with a part of the town where there's a huge amount of work going on and all mm. the rest of it. And and some of that can obviously disturb buildings that are in the surrounds of it. Mm. You know what I mean? And here in an awful lot of cases, like I, I, 
I imagine there was no element of signs of this going to happen. You know, this could happen to any of us. And I suppose the mm. unfortunate thing here is that it happened to to a man. And uh, obviously him and his family are had a particularly rough day. And we just wish him the best. And, and uh, hopefully he'll come out the tail end of this. And then maybe there is a lesson we mm. all have to yeah. look at. Because here we're talking about here Dundalk. And yeah, we have considerable mm. amount of buildings that are particularly old and all the rest of it as well, you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely, uh, and uh, I'm sure and everybody listening will echo uh, those well wishes uh, that uh, you're sending to the man I- involved in this. Uh, it probably is just a coincidence, but it, isn't it a, a remarkable coincidence uh, that a, a wall collapsed at the Long Walk area of Dundalk uh, just two weeks ago, uh, and uh, another man, a construction worker, was lucky to have escaped that, apparently. Yeah, no, no, well, 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 that's it, and I suppose here, you know, you can, it's the unfortunate thing, you can, you can never be too careful, but you can't always, you know what I mean, you can't always make allowances for, for all these, all these things. I should also point out, we, we had particularly bad news in Dundalk, and then it was followed up, obviously, in Drogheda by a, an 80-year-old uh, man, or a man in his 80s in, in Drogheda getting, getting knocked down. So look, it's been a really, really un, 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 unfortunate period for for the entire county, mm. and as I say, um, knocked down and killed. And, and again, my heart goes out to the family there. But as I say, we've had nothing but tragedy. Yeah, uh, 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 is Catherine Henry somebody uh, that you'd have known personally, or do you know anybody uh, who would be acquainted with Catherine Henry? This is the sixty-two-year-old woman who was murdered on Wednesday. I, I, I'll be honest because again the name was floating yesterday. I, I, I don't think I know the lady. I spoke to a number of people that did. I, I, none of them knew her particularly well. They just they just knew her or met her or to, to say hello and all the rest of it. You know, um, but obviously no one was anticipating you know something like this happening. Stuff like this is particularly. Uh, shocking, but what we need is, I suppose, to give any information mm. to the Gardaí to make sure that they are allowed the space to deal with it. Mm. And again, I, I, it's another case where we don't necessarily need yeah, commentary and commentary online, mm. and that's, that seems to be okay. a particular problem in relation to a number of these issues that we're dealing with at the minute. Okay, um, it, it uh, seems like the Gardaí wanted a lot of space to deal with it, uh, and we're really playing down the incident uh, to LMFM's newsroom yesterday uh, and we're not very forthcoming with information whatsoever Uh, and uh, another peculiar aspect to this is that now we have a a murder in the town Gardaí say they're appealing for witnesses but have uh, declined LMFM's invitation to appeal for witnesses publicly does that seem odd to you? Well, I, I, I suppose there's always an element that there's an understanding when you have a murder and the minute it got escalated to a murder investigation, people are aware that anybody that has even the slightest piece of information and needs needs to happen. Look, I've spoken to the to senior guardie yesterday. I will be speaking to senior guardie again today. Uh, I will obviously pass on the fact that... Um, I, I think the likes of yourselves provide an absolutely, you know what I mean, vital service in relation to getting a message out there. Um, and sometimes, yeah, people need to be told this, even to trigger that it could be that very small thing that they saw or heard or whatever that they may have thought was insignificant, but could be absolutely necessary, 
um, from uh, a Garda investigative point of view. So we need to ensure, I suppose the important thing is that we get the message out, uh, no matter what interaction there has mm. been between yourselves and the Garda, that anybody with information mm. needs to needs to provide it. Yeah, or, or dash cam footage uh, if uh, you were anywhere near Bridge Street uh, on Wednesday evening, I would imagine in particular, um, uh, that seems uh, to be the time this incident uh, occurred at, uh, although um, uh, the lady's uh, corpse uh, remained on the property overnight uh, before the post-mortem yesterday, uh, which uh, has concluded uh, that uh, she was murdered. Uh, um, the uh, papers are reporting uh, this morning uh, that Gardy uh, appear uh, to want to speak to a man uh, who would be known uh, to Catherine Henry, uh, but uh, obviously that's uh, speculation at this stage. Well, it's they're actually at some stage are saying they have spoken to a man who's known to the victim and is being treated as a, as a person of interest, you know, and uh, it's it's like, and again, there's a huge amount of commentary that you're getting in the public domain, but, you know, I just need to make sure that I get the message out to people that that doesn't mean to be spread on social media, whatever about people having conversations, because mm. they'll obviously have conversations in relation to this and anybody that has any piece yeah. of information no, how, no matter how insignificant it needs to be provided to the Garda yeah. I imagine they have particular reasons for not releasing some of the information in relation to the post-mortem and all the rest of it and that was from an investigative point of view it probably relates to how they're dealing with this specific case like we just have to understand that they know what they're doing, doing unfortunately Dundalk, not, not the first murder we, that has been dealt with in Dundalk there has been a huge amount of um, of previous tragedy, and unfortunately, a huge amount of experience has been has been guaranteed. But I know I remember speaking to you know even former chief superintendents and all the rest of it, and they would have always said, even in what people think are cut and shut cases that are absolutely definitive, you know, you have to be incredibly careful given the seriousness of particularly murder charges, that you need to ensure that absolute due diligence is done and that the mistake isn't made in any way, shape or form. Mm. Uh, it should go without saying, uh, but uh, obviously uh, we'll ask people uh, to be cognizant of the fact that these are real people uh, and that there are real people uh, who are having a, a very hard time uh, in two yes. circumstances, mourning uh, the loss of uh, a loved one, colleague, friend, uh, and uh, in uh, the third case in uh, Dundalk, uh, people uh, obviously very concerned about that man uh, after that accident, um, act of God, um, act of fate, whatever it was, uh, with that building collapsing on top of him. As you say, we wish him well, and uh, I'm not sure that anybody really should be uh, thinking beyond that, uh, except uh, that man's uh, health and uh, that he pulls through this. Rory, thank um, you indeed. Michael, just yeah. just just yeah. beforehand, yeah. and as I say, I, I don't want to, for the want of a better term, overegg this as well. But this probably feeds into that particular issue as well. Look, we, we know the importance there is in relation to making sure the Gardaí are sufficiently resourced to be able to carry out all the investigative parts. Yeah. And there has been a discussion in the last while in relation to the court system, you know, at the mm. DPP, and all of them not necessarily being resourced, not having enough judges, mm. and all the rest of it. So I think, look, given the seriousness of the sort of cases, mm. you know, and the day-to-day -day stuff that I know even comes across my desk, but they, I can't mm. even imagine what lands on the guard's desk, mm. that we, we need to make sure that we have every element of the justice system 
resource and that will mean more judges, that will mean more yeah. guards do, and do, it will do, mean ensuring all the resources as regards vehicles, training, etc. Do, does it mean that Gardaí should not be on patrol in France, in Disneyland, uh, which may be the case we heard yesterday over the summer? Yeah, look, um, I know you get stories like that. I think the minister, not I think, the Minister for Justice was asked a question in relation to that, and he spoke about that nothing had been authorised yet. He spoke about that some of this was, uh, that, that there are relationships that are built up with international police forces, and it related to, if I had this right, I, I think it was mo- mobility issues, you know what I mean? It may have related to some sort of mm. disability issues, but we would need to get some sort of clarity on whatever because the headline piece doesn't sound particularly all right. And, and we all know the particular issues that there are as regards Gardaí. I know many have spoken to me about the fact that they don't feel that, you know, at times that, you know what I mean, they mm. feel under pressure that, you know, for the want of a better term, nobody has, has their back. Um, and... We, we can't have a case then. And we also know because of the retention, uh, particular issues, that we don't necessarily always have the numbers we need. Now, I know in Dundalk, I would have spoken to the superintendent, he would have said we had an increase in the last while. We would have had a particular issue at one stage that we didn't have enough sergeants and whatever else. So we had an issue in relation to supervision. Some of that has been dealt with. But also, new Gardaí need time to bed in and be trained and all the rest of it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, look, the headline piece doesn't look uh, particularly good in relation yeah. to that. We need to make sure that Gardaí are being used from a point of view of society's best bang for buck and ensuring they're doing the necessary stuff from crime prevention, investigation, and ensuring that they're putting cases together in relation to uh, those people that mm-hmm. need to be um, removed from society. Okay. Well, it's been an awful... 24 hours, an awful couple of days, really. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning, Sinn Féin TD, for Loud and East Meads, Rory O'Murkou. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Now there was high drama yesterday evening in Trim uh, as well uh, with a very brief court appearance for a 42-year-old woman who had uh, been extradited from South Africa. Paul Murphy, uh, who is a journalist with uh, the Mead Chronicle, was in court. And a very good morning to you, Paul, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme. Ruth Lawrence was facing some very serious charges. Yes, uh, Ruth Lawrence is uh, age 42 and she's originally from Clontarf in, in uh, Dublin. And uh, she presently has a, an address at Ross in Mount Nugent in County Mead. Uh, she was charged with the murder of Owen O'Connor, age 32, and Anthony Keegan, 33, in 2014. Both were, both were from Coolock in Dublin. Uh, the hearing was held in court number three of Trim District Court before Judge Cormac Dunn. Miss Lawrence was brought from Trim Garda Station in a Garda car, which was driven into the court's interior car park. Uh, the courtroom number three filled up with Garda, including Superintendent Blaheen Moran of Kells Garda Station, uh, and there were a number of detectives and, and media people in, in the court. Uh, there was a 45-minute wait for the hearing to start, and, and uh, I have to say the... Uh, Atmosphere in the room was, was pretty tense, of course. Mm. Uh, three of Miss Lawrence's relatives sat at the back of the, of the court. When, when Judge Dunn arrived on the bench, uh, the accused, dressed in white blouse, black jacket, check trousers, was brought into the into the courtroom. So then the, the, the court presenter, Sergeant Peter Clark, introduced Detective Garda Ray Flynn to the witness box. 
Uh, Detective Flynn gave evidence that he had arrested the accused at Dublin Airport at 5.15pm yesterday. He said she was then brought to Trim Garda Station, where he charged the accused with the alleged murder of the two men at an unknown location within the state on an unknown date between 24th of April 2014 and 26th of May 2014. He said that she made no reply as reply to the charges. Uh, the accused solicitor was Danielle O'Sullivan, and she applied for free legal aid on behalf of her client. She handed in then a statement of means, and the uh, the free legal aid then was granted by Judge Dunn. Sergeant Clark said he was seeking a, a remand in custody, and Judge Dunn remanded the accused to appear by video link at the Central Court of Justice on next Tuesday. Uh, the accused did not speak during the 15th minute hearing and have said then that the uh, the bodies of the two men were discovered on the shore of Inchicap Island on Loch Sheedon on May the 26th 2014 so the hearing the hearing then ended and the, the accused was brought away by the guardie in custody and, and then then the, the courtroom was closed okay uh, and that's why uh, the hearing was heard in trim initially. Uh, a five-minute hearing uh, uh, at around a quarter to eight yesterday evening uh, with Ruth Lawrence uh, choosing not uh, to speak uh, at all during uh, that hearing. But the charge is so serious that uh, it'll move to the Central Criminal Court uh, and uh, that will be the beginning of what will undoubtedly be a much longer process. Yes. Absolutely, that that would that would take uh, quite some time. Okay, Paul, thank you indeed uh, for that. Uh, Paul Murphy, journalist uh, with uh, the Meath Chronicle, who was in uh, Trim uh, District Court yesterday. A, a, a very dramatic uh, case indeed, and in that Ruth Lawrence. Uh, was extradited. Uh, she didn't fight the extradition by all uh, accounts uh, and is said to, to have left the country at the time uh, that Owen O'Connor and Anthony Keegan, a 32-year-old and a 33-year-old man, uh, went missing. Uh, that was sometime, the Gardaí say, between April and May of 2014. So this is going back nine years ago. And their bodies were discovered in a shallow grave after a fisherman got a bad smell close to where Ruth Lawrence uh, and her partner uh, were living. Uh, And uh, she um, was then uh, away in South Africa with Neville van der Westhuizen, a 40-year-old man. Uh, They went to South Africa. Uh, And since then, um, her partner, Westhuizen, Uh, has been arrested. He was arrested on the 4th of October last year by South African police at a a bungalow that she had been renting uh, in relation to the homicide of a teenager after a beating. Uh, He was convicted apparently of kidnap and grievous bodily harm and he's now serving a 15-year prison sentence. Uh, But... uh, Miss Lawrence had the option of fighting uh, the extradition warrant back to Ireland in relation to the murder of these two men, but she chose not to and voluntarily returned. Uh, So I think uh, that will be a case that is going to be watched with great interest over the coming weeks. I think there's probably little doubt about that. Now, 
As you know, uh, Fidegale TD, Damien English, uh, has been the subject of much controversy since uh, January of uh, this year when he had to resign as a Minister of State because he had misled Meath County Council in a planning application. He hasn't been heard of since. Uh, That is, until yesterday, when LMFM reporter Mark O'Driscoll caught up with Damien English, who continues to be a TD, uh, and a TD uh, who he told Mark uh, is working very hard for the communities that he serves. You mentioned a lot of communities there, and I'm sure a lot of those communities have questions about yourself mm. and why a few months ago you resigned as junior minister at the, the Department of Business. Yeah, and I've been engaged with those communities for months over the last few over the last couple of months as well as I'm out and about doing my job as a TD. They understand I'm no longer a minister, but I'm still a TD for the area, and I made it very clear when I resigned and stepped back as being a minister, I wanted to continue working as a TD, working very closely with them. So I've been lucky the last few months to have more time to work with all those groups on projects to bring them forward, to chase government for more money, chase all the departments as well. I'm lucky enough to have spent probably uh, seven or eight years in different departments, enterprise, education, housing, and back into enterprise again. So a lot of connections that I've been able to work on more projects and deliver as well. So it's important that I do that. Naturally, of course, most people want to, want to, want to understand, want to know what happened. And I explained on a planning application at the time that the, my information wasn't fully there. So for, for me, that, that was below the stand that I would expect of anybody and I hadn't reviewed that file, I made the decision to step back. And I think that was the right decision to do at the time. Uh, there had been two, uh, two committees have, have had to look into that on the doll as well. So I'm looking forward to have the results of them very soon as well. And do you think it's damaged your career politically? Well, look, nobody likes to, to resign as a minister. I love doing that job. I love representing the county. I represent the country as a minister. And I felt that I was able to bring it up to the table, worked very closely with colleagues. But I still think as a role, my, my view of politics is that you can, no matter what position you're in, be a TD, be a minister, be a councillor, that you can make an impact. Uh, and I believe that, in, that during my time as minister, I got the chance to do that and to deliver, uh, both for county, both for county me, but also for the country. But more importantly, my main role uh, is as a TD, a TD for me. West and to work and to deliver for the people I represent. I'm very lucky to have two strong offices both here in Trim and Nav and a good team working there and we're working very very hard but of course all these things have an an effect but I just keep doing my job and explain to people as I go along what it's all about and, and hopefully you know we'll see what happens in the next election. And will you run in the next election? I certainly intend to. That's, that's my hope and, uh, and uh, all going well. Uh, but of course, if people in me decide who their TDs are, uh, part of my job will be when the time comes to go back out and campaign and ask all those people for the vote again. And I've had a lot of support uh, since uh, since January and people uh, you know, understand what I went through and it's, it's worked in two ways. But I also, I do believe that you set high standards uh, and I wasn't happy with myself and my own standards in relation to that planning file and that's why I was said stood back as Minister. And you could understand why people were frustrated about that too? Um, well, not, people have questions and answers. Of course, that's what it is. But I mean, I, I would, and, and naturally, people I worked a lot, a lot of, lot of departments as well. But, but I had strong views on that when it came to, to a planning file, and that's what was, what was my decision. Uh, I informed the teacher that night. I did put out my information to explain why that was, uh, and that's 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 what it's there for. Very interesting. That's uh, the first interview that Damien English has uh, given since he resigned as a minister of state back in January. Uh, possibly the most interesting part of it is how. The disgraced minister says people understood what he went through. Um, Is that the case? I'm not sure that it is. Um, But uh, he did also tell us uh, that there were a lot of questions that he wanted to to give answers. Um, Well, people have questions and answers, of course, that's what it is. Yeah, that's uh, that's the way it is. Questions and answers. Well, people have questions and answers, of course, that's what it is. Well, we have a a few questions uh, because uh, the minister seems... uh, 
keen to answer questions uh, because let's remember he did say oh, well, not, people have questions and answers of course that's what it is let's uh, think of some of those questions uh, if uh, Damien English is listening to us now as uh, you'd expect that he probably is uh, one of the questions I suppose that people want to have answered is if Damien English knowingly and intentionally uh, dishonestly misled Mead County Council uh, is Damien English knowingly and intentionally being dishonest now, saying that people have questions and he wants to answer them, but he hasn't responded to anybody who wants to ask him questions uh, in a public forum since resigning in January? Uh, is he really going to stand for the next election, given uh, that he seems to have been knowingly and intentionally dishonest and has done nothing to defend himself since he was disgraced out of office in January of this year? Uh, I suppose another question that people would like to ask Damien English if he was uh, available is, uh, did you actually forget you were the owner of a house when you made that false application, that misleading application to Meath County Council? Or people might want to know, uh, Damien English, do you think that they are gullible? Or uh, do you believe that there is one set of rules for Damien English and another set of rules for everybody else? Now, we've been calling Damien English since January, but to no avail. Despite him saying people have questions and he wants to answer them. Hi, it's Damien here. Please leave a message and I will call you back at first chance. And he says he'll call us back at first chance. I don't think that's particularly honest either because he has never called LMFM back, not once since January. Uh, We've had one communication with his office when we sent questions in writing to Damien English's personal secretary about the North-South Interconnector. I don't know how many months ago that was, but we were promised a written response or some sort of response, but we heard nothing. Um, uh, We'll continue to uh, invite Damien English onto the programme. He's welcome uh, to come onto the programme if he wishes to explain himself to you on the programme. He says he understands you have questions. Uh, He seems keen to answer them, uh, and we will be glad to give him the opportunity to do that. In the meantime, if you want to tell us what questions you'd like to ask of Damien English, our telephone number is 041-983-2000. You can text or WhatsApp 086-1800-658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Just one comment actually uh, about Damien English from Tommy and Mead who says Damien English is not sorry because of what he did. He is sorry though that he was caught out. Uh, thanks very much uh, indeed, Tommy. Uh, I, I think Damien English might be uh, disappointed or surprised to hear um, that you don't understand what he went through. Uh, as uh, we heard him say to Marco Driscoll there a few moments ago, uh, because uh, he did have to take a a drop in his salary. Of course, he continues to be a TD, uh, and he earns €107,376, as all TDs do. Uh, I don't think uh, Damien English has made one contribution in uh, the doll uh, since he was disgraced out of office. Uh, Certainly not one that I'm aware of, I could be wrong, but I haven't uh, heard Damien English speak in uh, the doll since uh, January. Uh, He hasn't uh, returned any calls, uh, hasn't uh, had the courtesy to say, I'm not doing interviews or respond in any way 
uh, that you would expect from a local TD to the local radio station LMFM, uh, but continues to enjoy that salary of €107,376. If you'd like to make comment on that, 0419832000, text or WhatsApp 0861800658, email michael at lmfm.ie. Now, have you applied for planning permission to build your own home uh, in uh, perhaps uh, the vicinity of your parents' house, uh, hoping uh, for local needs uh, exemption uh, and uh, to uh, begin uh, the process uh, that you've dreamt of all of your life, only to have your planning application refused. Uh, apparently, uh, that's very commonplace in County Louth. It was reported at the Loud County Council May meeting that planning permission was refused for 40% of rural homes in Loud in 2022. This amounts to 70 out of 177 planning applications for rural dwellings rejected in 2022. 70 families. From 2021, loud planning permission requirements in rural areas are, in comparison to the rest of the country, very restrictive especially in relation to local needs requirement. Right, that's Peter Fitzpatrick, Independent TD, uh, speaking in uh, the Dáil yesterday, saying County Loud, people in County Loud are being treated than uh, other people in different parts of uh, the country. The tarnish to Micheál Martin wasn't buying that. There is no cap or ban on the granting of planning permission um, for new homes in rural Ireland. But Peter Fitzpatrick told Micheál Martin he's wrong. Tarnish, I live in County Loud and I know what's going on in County Loud. 40% refuse it in rural uh, county loud. That's me, that's 70 families that has to live in mobile homes, live with friends, or live wherever they have to live is. They can't get planning permission. Your government is instructing the local authorities to build houses on the, on the local authority land. But our local council are refusing landowners and families from building on theirs. So that's a contradiction. We realise there's a housing crisis at the moment is. You're trying to put people, your government's trying to put people out in the sea everywhere at the moment to find homes. One thing this country has, we've loads of land. Can we not just get up our backside and for once and for all look after these people that has no homes? Like, you know, I know families in County Loud that have hundreds of acres of land and they can't get building on the lands. So I'm going to ask you, Tarnisha, and, and your Minister for uh, Housing, come down to County Loud and investigate and see what's going on. There's something serious going on there at the moment. Is. Every time, I, for some unknown reason, and you want to see the answers are given, abrupt answers. In other words, don't be ringing me, that's the answer, end of story. There's a crisis in this country at the moment is. And there's a lot of, there's, there's a lot of things going on in this country teachers I don't like, demonstrations and everything else. But people are frustrated that they can't build on their own land. It makes no sense whatsoever. Thank you, Deputy. I, I, I have a young girl who's married with two children and the family's in loads of land, 40, 50 acres of land. Do you know what the council told her? To do an extension under the house 50 metres. You couldn't put a family on to an extension of 50 metres. They already have their grannies and everything else living there. Tarnasha, I want you and the Minister deputy. to come down to County Loud and have a look. 40%, 70 families last year will be the fuel mission. It's not acceptable in this housing crisis. And I'm listening to radio station guards doing this. We have a problem. Deputy, Let's start looking after the people in the area. Tarnasha, sorry, uh, I'm sorry. But please, I know I'll see you on Saturday in Navin, but, but, but more importantly, Minister, as a ton shot, please look after these families yeah, in the homes. That's what I'm saying. Come to County Loud yourself, Minister, please. Well, I think the, the match on, 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 at the weekend is in Navin um, uh, and so forth. And uh, we go forward with all, we go forward with all modesty and so on like that. But uh, could I just say, in respect of the... I was going to mention the vacant, the dereliction grants which I think gives real opportunities. But I take your point. There, I understand the sincerity of what you're saying in terms of people who want to build on their families' land. Now, the, the, the overall planning policy over the years has been to try and move to areas that are contiguous to villages and towns for services, sewage services, uh, amenities, uh, and, and so on. And that's been the preferred policy direction. 
Yeah, right. Uh, that's Michal Martin. Uh, somebody saying it's just as bad in Mead when it comes to local needs. I couldn't get planning permission because I was 800 metres out of the village, meaning it was rural and not urban. I contacted Damien English over it last year. He said he'd call me back on Saturday. That Saturday never came, Michael. It's not only you that he's not calling back. Thank you. Mick uh, says uh, the problem uh, Damien English had is to do with the ridiculous rules on rural building. Uh, and he had to do something. The rules are flawed and I wouldn't blame him, says Mick. Thank you indeed if you've taken the time to text us today. Michael Reed on LMFM. The Irish Congress of Trade Union says that the national minimum wage should rise to 13.30 in January of next year and increase by another €2 Euro on top of that in January of 2025, making the minimum wage then 15 30. Let's speak to Paddy Malone, who's a PRO for Dundalk's Chamber of Commerce. A very good morning to you, Paddy. Thanks indeed uh, for joining us. Morning, what, what will your members make of this? They'll comply with the law, as they always do. Um, and what we would be saying to members would be that, where necessary, you should always treat your employees with the respect that they deserve. Uh, and if you respect them, they'll, they'll give back... Uh, in, in, in work and productivity. So uh, we don't have a problem with, with minimum wages being set. Uh, as long as it's realistic, there was a time 10 years ago, 15 years ago, when one minister, Mary Harney, said, it's great that we have the highest uh, minimum wage in the country, and then the country collapsed. So we've, we've always got to bear proper, really, proper common sense to apply to it. So Look, the, the, the increase is not that significant. It's, it's, I don't know even if it's keeping in line with inflation, but the reality is every employer knows, as, as just as a person living in the community, that the cost of living is going up. So we do have to respond to that. All right, so it's a reasonable request from the unions, is it? I think the minimum request is, I think the idea of getting to a living wage, which is really what the unions are after, is a greater ask and that needs to be done with a certain amount of caution uh, particularly in sectors that would be exposed to overseas now i'd be thinking if the retail sector along the border um where wage rates could be significantly different between not between Uri and dundalk uh, but as a general statement uh, we do not want to go to no no employer in this country nowadays would treat the staff in the Victorian way of Dickens or anything else like that. So, you know, it's it's common sense and a certain amount of calmness with it. And when you look at it in reply to other jurisdictions, you bear that in mind. I mean, one of the good things about this country is that our tax system doesn't kick in as low as it does in other countries, and that needs to be borne in mind. All right, uh, and I suppose uh, the next question is, what is the living wage? Uh, because uh, there appears to be different uh, definitions. Uh, you've uh, the living wage uh, group that sets it on an annual basis, and then you have the government's target of what the living wage will be. I think the, the government's target is probably more more scientific from the point of view that it's looking at uh, wage structures throughout the whole island and saying nobody should be low a certain amount. Uh, you know that if this is the if this is the the, the median and it's the um, average the average median, then people shouldn't be at more than sixty percent below that uh, average. And I think that's a fair way of doing it because these things are all relative to each other. I mean, if I'm on a salary of X. 
it's it's how that relates to somebody that would be comparable to me. And if they're on true X, well then I'm not being paid the right the right rate. Mm. If I'm the one that's on the true X, yeah. either he's not being paid right, or I've or, or I'm overpaid at uh, one or the other. It's so it's relative But are you overpaid? Uh, I, I mean, I, I think it's what thirteen eighty at the moment. Uh, thirteen eighty five, uh, I think, is uh, what it's set at at the moment. Uh, and if you're not earning that, uh, the argument is that you can't afford a new overcoat or you can't afford to go to the pictures on a Saturday night or to buy a pint at the weekend or to go on a holiday. Uh, uh, And uh, uh, these are just basic fundamental things that you should be able to do when you're working as well as affording your rent and your bills and all of that sort of stuff. It comes back to what I said earlier on. Any decent employer will be paying what the rate is worth, not what they can get away with. And we would always be saying to our members, pay what the person is worth. And that's... that. Sure, but, but, but I suppose the question I, I was asking you is, if you're earning less than 1385 now, uh, is it a, a decent salary, given uh, that uh, the living wage group says that you can't afford these very basic things? If, in if you're on 1385 and living at home, and, and a lot of people are in that boat, then... 1385 is probably not a bad starting point. That's a if different you're, thing. If you're, excuse yeah. me, if mm-hmm. you're in your 20s or 30s and you're trying to live on a flat or anything else like that, mm. it's impossible. Yeah. You know, and I think this idea of one size fits all is not really the way to look at these things. So if, if I'm employing a 25 or a 30 year old with 10 years of experience of working in, in business, regardless of what that business is, they should not be on the minimum wage. Mm. They should be earning at least thirteen eighty five. They should mean, be earning at least that. Yes. So, so you'd agree with what the I would living agree wage is with the general thrust of it. The minimum wage is an absolute floor. It's the absolute bottom. Mm. And if you have a worker that is older than the, the minimum than, than the, <laughs> the wage at which somebody can start legally working, then that needs to be recognised, and that experience should be paid for. Mm. Uh, what about the argument that um, if you pay the living wage uh, to somebody uh, who otherwise would be on the minimum wage, uh, which is what ten eighty or something now? Ten eighty, I think it is. Ten eighty, yeah. yeah. And it's got, the intention is to go to about eleven forty. I think okay, it is. Okay, yeah. but if you take somebody from ten eighty to thirteen eighty five, what do you say to the other employer who's senior to that person in your company who's already earning thirteen eighty five? They're going to say that's not fair. I need fifteen eighty five. Well, you see, you've always got. The, first of all, you know what you earn should be your business and nobody else's business. Uh, if you are paying somebody who is doing the same work at the same level and the same competence, they should both, in my opinion, be paid the same. And I think most employers would agree with that. So there is seniority and there's other complications mm. to be brought into it. So th- but that's the point you're making. So you've got two uh, employees, one is senior to the other, one is on the minimum wage now of 1080, the other is on that slightly higher rate of 1385. If you bring the person on minimum wage up to the living wage of 1385, the other person is going to complain and say, I do more work, I have more responsibility. Well, if he does more work and responsibility, then that should be reflected in his mm-hmm. wage. Yeah. If he's doing the same, exactly the same job, then it's not. Mm. No, that's the point. Yeah, and I would agree with you. Mm. I would agree with you. But that I puts mean, an awful lot of pressure uh, on employers. Uh, look, there is no question but that employers, look, if, if you just have to think of the last five or six years and what we have been through. And the, any, any employer that's still standing deserves a medal, in my opinion, for being able to keep the show on the road. Uh, and 
there is a problem with uh, small businesses surviving. There's no question about that. Uh, but at the same time, it's, this is one of, one of the pressures, wage, wage costs. But you've got to recognise that it's, it's, you, you cannot treat your employees unfairly. So it comes back to this idea of, of looking at the thing in the round, not looking at things in isolation uh, on, on one-offs. But will it lead to... I think it would, would, what would happen in the case of employment is not so much that somebody will be made redundant or will be let go, but that an employer might well look and say, look, I can't afford to pay somebody at 13.50. I'll do the extra hours myself. I'll stay in and I'll stack the shelves or I'll do whatever I have to do and I'll do it an hour later. And if the wife gives out to me when I get home, well, so be it. Um, and that's my worry. And that's not what should happen because it should not be falling back on them. Everybody should be getting a living wage, uh, or a, a decent wage out of, their li- out of their lives. And everyone should have the time for a pint and the time for uh, relaxation and watching their dog be drawn out on a regular basis. <laughs> I didn't know you, you got out of bed and had two bowls of Weetabix. Uh, but thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, and uh, starting a little bit of trouble on the programme. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Paddy Malone, Piero of Dundalk's Chamber of Commerce. Thanks uh, to Desi in Balbriggan too. Desi in touch with us about planning permission and about Damien English and he says Damien English would be the best person to advise people on planning permission. Thank you indeed uh, Desi for that. We were talking about Gardaí earlier on in uh, the programme and indeed some of uh, the pressures uh, that there are in certain parts of the country uh, where Gardaí say they don't have the manpower. Where there's a strategy then there's obviously uh, the commissioner for example has responsibility for the deployment of resources and we know that there has been a reduced number of regions from six to four and the aim is to have 700 to 800 guards per division um, that assumes that the uh, there is an equality of service um, and there are a lot of metrics but but that there's some degree of equality of service around the country uh, consistently uh, Kildare and Mead have shown to be have the lowest ratio of population um, uh, per capita and and that just proves that as the population grows, the services don't grow with it. Now, that's Catherine Murphy of uh, the Social Democrats complaining about guarded numbers in Kildare and in County Meath and what the government is going to do about it. The, the deployment of, of Gardaí is a delegated function uh, to the Guard Commissioner. It's not, not a decision made by the Minister of Justice, uh, Arne Taoiseach, but happy to transmit any thoughts you have on that uh, if you haven't done so already. OK, that's the Taoiseach, Leo Vranker. So... The government can't do anything. It's up to the guard, uh, guard commissioner to decide uh, how many guardi are deployed where. Uh, and does that include Disneyland? Tanish, I was really perplexed today to see reports in the media that there are guardi being sent to Disneyland in France to police these tourist hotspots. Um, I see you're perplexed by that as well. I think considering the fact that we have migrant campsites that are being burnt out literally a stone's throw from the dole, and the Taoiseach himself has raised concerns about Gardaí numbers um, and whether we have enough numbers of Gardaí to, to police at the far right within in this country. Indeed, you could go to any community in, across the country, and I know certainly in my county of Wicklow, and people would like to see more Gardaí on the streets. Um, so it seems like a very, very strange decision that this is actually the second year. Previously, they were sent over to another tourist spot in France to to police these hotspots so that Irish tourists can see Irish Gardaí, if they have any questions. 
Thank you, Deputy. Apparently, the, the, the ambassador Time to France up, has organised this exchange. Time I, is up, I'm very Deputy, interested please. in your uh, in your opinions on that, Tonishta. Thank you. From time to time, we do have very creative diplomacy, um, and in terms of exchanges and learning of expertise and so on like that. The next thing could be a parliamentary trip to Disneyland. Um, it could be cross-party. Uh, um, we, we might get very valuable insights into how things um, operate. It's been a long time since I've been in Disneyland myself. So. <laughs> Opportunity beckons, but it, um, um, in, a, in a more serious vein, um, uh, I think that the, the broader issue of crime, I think, which you, you, you uh, introduced, and guardian numbers, I mean, there is very significant resource allocation has been made to recruit more Gardaí, uh, to a thousand more Gardaí, and that will continue year on year, uh, and applications have been received and so on in respect of that. Okay, we move on. Can there you go, that's... Um, can deputies I, please I, I understand the full sort of policy uh, wraparound as to why they're in Disneyland. Sorry, apologies. Can, can deputies please uh, stick to the time allocated and punished if you could stick to the rules help as well. Yes, please. I thought he was finished. That's uh, the Keown Corla laying down the law with Tanisha Michal Martin. It is the oddest story ever, isn't it? I mean, the idea of Irish police Gardaí in Disneyland, uh, whether it's one or two of them uh, who are available for people with disabilities who need uh, someone from their home country to help them out if uh, there's a problem or not, uh, it's still the oddest story ever. Anyway, I'm sure we'll hear more about that in time. Some comments. Stephen, thank you for your text. It's always good to get Stephen's text. He's in Drogheda. He has a disability and he tells us, by the time I pay my rent and electricity and my shopping, I've practically nothing left and I can't do anything at the weekend, especially with family. I just hope the government come to the next budget and give us something decent and not just a, a fiver added on or another 12 euro we need more thank you indeed uh, another text uh, whatsapp message uh, that comes uh, from lee i think it is uh I can't read your text as it is uh, written, but he, he says, please leave Damien English alone. Uh, maybe something happened that uh, has led to him forgetting that he owns a house. I try to forget all the time that I've a house because I have a big monthly mortgage to pay. And uh, he says there could also be a, a reason uh, from not answering uh, the phone, uh, which I won't go into <laughs> because... Uh, I don't think it probably is the reason, but uh, an interesting theory all the same. And thank you, Lee, for your text. You say, may his gods go with him. Uh, thanks to uh, somebody else uh, who's uh, been in touch, uh, who was in Dundalk yesterday, listening to Rory O'Murku earlier on, saying I was in a building beside that incident yesterday and just got a shock. Everyone stood well back. This is the building that uh, collapsed. When I realised that there was a man under it, it was very, very upsetting. There was a young man beside me who then um, started videoing the thing. Uh, we were all standing back uh, and he started videoing uh, what had happened. He actually moved from where I was uh, at the right to video from across the road and then walked up to behind... Uh, three excellent people who were assisting the man and removing the bricks. Our caller says, I'm fortunate that I don't go on Facebook much, but today it, it, the video apparently has been deleted. Where is the moral compass? Well done to the young man and the two ladies who talked to, assisted and removed the bricks from the man who was trapped under them. The young man in the yellow tracksuit recording it and the few drivers doing the same. 
Shame on you. Facebook used to be social and a place to share family photos, photos, but now it's a forum for bullies and horribleness. Horribleness. Thank you indeed. Our caller says it was lo- lovely to listen to Rory Murku on the programme this morning. Thank you indeed. Our telephone number is 0419832000. Text or WhatsApp 0861800658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, as I'm sure you probably know, the Drogheda Implementation Board was established in uh, the hope of uh, dealing with uh, a lot of uh, the problems uh, that uh, people in Drogheda experienced as a result of uh, a feud between criminal gangs dealing in drugs uh, and indeed uh, the drugs uh, themselves uh, and it's been at work now for some time. Grania Beryl is uh, the coordinator with uh, the Drawed Implementation Board and she's come in to us uh, this morning to tell us uh, about a number of grants uh, that have uh, been given to a number of organisations, I can't remember offhand but we're talking about 10, 15 different organisations uh, who are all hoping to intervene uh, where there's problems with young people. Yeah, thanks, Michael. Yeah, so we um, published a small grant scheme earlier this year and we were delighted to announce that 21 projects have been funded. Um, it, we just announced it this week, actually. And yeah, it's approximately 15 organisations, but it's about 21 grants doing different things, whether it's um, w- with young people. We have uh, four thematic areas under the Drogheda report, which Vivian, Vivian Gearin published, and then the plan that was following on from that report. And these kind of projects fo- cover three of those thematic areas, which is policing and drugs, family support, children, and young people in education and then um, area community development arts, culture and sports so they cover all of those kind of the mm. sectors if you like Yeah uh, and uh, there's some uh, groups that people will be very familiar with like the boxing clubs for example Yeah so mm. we're delighted actually that um, there's five projects funded that have a kind of a sports remit um, I was having a look when I was preparing to come and have a chat with you today and there's an organisation in the UK called the Youth Endowment Fund. They look specifically at how to prevent young people becoming involved in violence. Mm. And actually sports is the number two greatest impact, highest impact in terms of um, how to prevent serious youth violence. So really pleased to see that there's five projects or to have five projects um, with a sporting focus. Yeah. And they're very much, mm. those projects are very much about, um, I suppose, young people that maybe they'd be more challenged to access those sports having the opportunity to access them. Mm. Um, so yeah. yeah and judo as well. Uh, yeah. That's a really exciting yeah. one. Yeah, so mm. we have judo mm. and we also mm. have um, kickboxing and karate. Mm. Yeah. And they're, they're very much about access to those sports as well. So it's uh, one of those programmes is going to actually offer free um, mm. access to, the, sorry, free membership and free um, classes initially mm. to get young people to actually involved and, yeah. and engage with their um, programmes initially mm. during the summer months in particular because yeah. quite a lot of the activities are summer based mm. which is obviously the time when people are out of school and perhaps have more time in their mm. hands so mm. yeah. there's kind of a focus there in uh, engaging young people and children yeah. in pro-social activity in, the, in their own community. Yeah because uh, quite often when there's drugs or probably more accurately put when there's problems with uh, drugs there's uh, other problems and anger can uh, be uh, a problem for young people and uh, I suppose this is a way of manifesting people's anger in a controlled environment. And sport is a great outlet for mm. energy and, and as you say, I know I know anger mm. maybe Is there too much focus on sport though? Because, I mean, we have every uh, type of sport in the town already uh, available to people who are not participating, who have gone down the wrong road, if you like. I suppose there's access issues as well. So not every family has the means to for their children and young people mm. and their families to actually access those sports. Mm. And part of some of these projects is actually about going out and reaching out into the communities that maybe are most impacted and connecting with those 
those young people and drawing them in to the activities. The late night league is one that we, we know mm. um, has been very successful around um, engaging young people, but also because it's a partnership with the guards, mm. it kind of starts to build those very po- more positive relationships with the guards mm. as well. Um, there are other, obviously, yeah. sports. Is, there's mm. five of the I'm projects uh, and there's yeah. 21 mm. projects, yeah. or six of the projects actually yeah. are sport. Mm. But, um, for, for Oga seem to be particularly uh, proactive, don't they? Yeah, so they've actually two projects, but they're the lead. They're mm. actually collaboration projects. Mm. So one of those is, um, you were talking about the, you know, the challenges with drugs. Mm. One of those is actually a drug diversion project, but it's a partnership with Youth Work Ireland Louth. So they're going to be working in Moneymore and the Southside Rathmullen kind of area. Mm. Um, and it's very, it's a really interesting project and it's around um, one of the pieces that they're doing is they're getting, I don't know if you've heard the two, the two Naris. They do a podcast, really interesting podcast. And they're, they're people who had experience with addiction themselves and have kind of come full circle. And they're going to come and talk about their lived experience. Mm. And then the young people from both sides of the town are going to come together and do a piece of work together. Like, And it's around raising awareness of where this could lead you, this mm. life path could lead you. Like, it's not mm. all glamour and, you mm. know, that kind of way. Like, what, so. what have you already chosen that path? What if you're talking about a uh, 15-year-old who smokes dope every day, thinks about nothing else except getting a bag of Charlie? Uh, and has no interest in sport or uh, well this this though, that project is or actually, the arts uh, or any of these yeah things. well that project yeah. is actually yeah. a youth diversion yeah. program so yeah. they are young people who the junior uh, liaison officer the juvenile liaison officer and the guards are referred through so potentially they're on that path but it's really interesting you say that because I've just come from a three day thinking with yeah. 20 people from Darndale 20 people from Drawda having a look at the issues that you've just raised yeah. there yeah. and uh, Professor Sean Redmond from the University of Limerick spoke to us specifically around issues like drug related intimidation and his one of his key messages was no young person is beyond redemption mm. we just including the drug dealers Absolutely, mm. absolutely. Like everybody mm. can, yeah. you know, you have to keep putting the interventions in to try to draw the person to a different path. Mm. But you also have to recognise that sometimes people choose that path because it is the most viable option for mm. them. So is anybody talking to, to the drug dealers? Well, obviously, they, they, you know, the it's always policing. That's the, the policing side mm. of things. But our, um, we actually have a very, very strong juvenile liaison programme and a very strong okay. um, youth diversion programmes mm. in Drada. And they're the people that are talking to the young people who maybe mm. are on, on that path. Do you know, yeah. when you're saying drug dealers, obviously policing issues, we don't get involved in it and, and they are working with them. But we do have... No, I'm talking about behaviour. Uh, the behaviour of selling drugs um, is anybody... Uh, who uh, is representing the implementation board? Uh, is there any uh, uh, mechanism that the implementation board uh, has put in place to reach out to dr- drug dealers, to talk to them, uh, to talk about ethics, maybe uh, about selling their products to fourteen-year-olds, uh, uh, to talk uh, uh, about the content of the product that they're selling? So the structures of the board, we have four subgroups and there's a lot of people who are working on mm. the ground and then there's the board. So the, the, the subgroups kind of work, look at issues like that. Um, again, a really interesting thing just coming from that three day thinking. One of the ideas and one of the concepts that was being proposed, and I hope I'm OK to say it now because it was just a proposal, is around doing a kind of a media or messaging campaign around the impact mm. not just from the drug dealer side but from those who are taking the drugs. So mm. we have to recognise that the whole piece of supply. There's a lot of people in in, um, settings that are maybe not the most challenged who are taking the drugs that is fueling the the issues when you're talking about children and young people Mm. getting drawn into this kind of uh, sector. So um, that's kind of an idea and I'm hoping Mm. that we're going to do a piece of work around that. But it is really what the drug implementation... What would the message to them be? What's the message? To the young people, yeah. 
So the message mm. it, from what that concept was, the message was that if you're taking drugs on a Saturday night, mm. this is what it means. Mm. Do you know what I mean? So mm. it means mm. that that child or young person is potentially getting involved in violent activity. I it's a concept mm. idea at this point. But I suppose I should say that the way the Drought Implantation Board, it, it's not to substitute the work that's happening on the ground. Do you know mm. what I mean? Like there's a lot of, it's to support and bring together and to either bring dra- uh, more resources to Drought to deal with yeah. issues that you've just identified or to support and, and as um, different organisations who are involved in the board, there's 32 organisations yeah. involved in the different structures to collectively work together to address those issues. So it's not that the board would necessarily be going directly to speak to those people but there are people working on the ground mm. who are speaking to those people yeah. if that and, makes and sense. And would you consider asking somebody to speak to the drug dealers? I mean it's not our role to identify who is and isn't involved in illicit activity but it is the guards role and the guards do sit on our structures. But this is the problem the problem is the drugs it's not just the people who are taking the drugs uh, it's everybody involved in it is it not and I mean surely if we're going to find a solution we have to include all of the actors. Well actually there's a number of different projects that we're involved well, one is coming to fruition. So there's a one called the Joint Agency Response to Crime, which is where we would have the, it's, so it's probation services, mm. it's the Red Door Project, it's the guards all coming together. Mm. So as people are coming out of prison, who mm. are in prison, who are from Drada, in prison for drug-related yeah. uh, um, issues, whether that's stealing or whatever, mm. usually it's for sale but why and deal, why, why deal with it as a crime? Uh, I, I mean, you know, otherwise you're always going to have criminality uh, and um, there's going to be no solution to it because... That's the world we live in. People sell drugs. Uh, Maybe we could talk to them about the people that they sell drugs to. Maybe we could talk to them about the products that they sell. Yeah, so I just want to finish that previous point, if you don't mind. Mm. So when those people are coming out, that there will be a wraparound support to them so that they don't re-engage with that Mm. activity. And it is around that piece Mm. about being community aware. No, my question is, what about people who want to? Want to what? To take drugs, to sell drugs. Yeah. So I just... To have fun uh, enjoying drugs. Yeah, and obviously you have to recognise that that's part and parcel of of life nowadays in Ireland. Mm. But we're, like I've already said about that kind of idea, that's that concept that's coming Mm. out of that session that we did. But are we alienating people? I mean, do we just say, yeah, we recognise it, um, but there's nothing we can do about it. uh, uh, And um, we leave it to the police. That's alienating a huge portion of the population. And that alienation has led to the kind of problems that we've experienced in Drada because that's fueled a, a market uh, which has created a us and them, uh, uh, a young cohort of the population uh, who look on uh, authority uh, and old farts talking down to them, telling them not to take drugs uh, as the enemy, as the other side. Yeah. Actually, that is what the draw, the structures of the Drada Implantation Board are about. It's not just, I know I was saying about the policing, mm. when you were talking, speaking about drug dealing, that mm. is a policing issue in terms of being a crime. But we are bringing everybody together because community safety, which includes issues like taking drugs or dealing mm. with drugs, community safety is about everybody. It's not just about the guards. So it's about people, all of us coming together to get a solution. Whether, whatever those solutions might be. I suppose coming back to um, the, the the projects that we've funded there and you, we were talking there about the piece where Froga and Youth Work Ireland mm. Loud are talking to children and young people in their community. Um, and it is that piece that you're, it's raising their awareness of the actual impact of what taking or dealing drugs is in. And that's why when they're bringing the two Naris to come and speak to the young people, that's true lived experience. And those, like, it's not old farts. They're people who are, um, who have the mm. lived experience of 
being that young person mm. who maybe thought it was great crack to start taking drugs and then ended up in a different path and they've both been in prison mm. as a result. Do you, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. So mm. it's really lived experience. But, so. but we have a tradition of alienating people. Uh, a good example, uh, I think, uh, is an award that was granted by Loud County Council just this week uh, to a very innovative young person in DKIT. Uh, the council gave uh, the person 1500 because he had developed a, an app uh, which uh, allows people to report graffiti. Uh, and uh, I think very laudable, I'm sure, a uh, brilliant piece of technology. Uh, and perhaps it'll lead to less graffiti. But why not facilitate graffiti? Well, I actually, we're, you were talking about graffiti there. It's not actually an issue that's come up through any of our structures. Mm. It wasn't said to Vivian Guerin. None of our subgroups have raised the issue of graffiti. That particular... But I'm it's antisocial. Like the point is, is that it's antisocial behaviour. Uh, I mean, there's an alienation of people. We want them, we're now going to use an app to arrest them uh, if the app is successful. Uh, why not facilitate them? I, I don't know if you've ever been to Prague and seen the John Lennon Wall. I'm sure many of our listeners will have. And it's one of uh, the biggest tourist attractions. It's graffiti. Yeah. Uh, and it can be done in, in such a way. We asked Loud County Council, are they any mechanism? They said they've nothing in place at the moment. But they're giving 1500 to somebody to stop it. Uh, and it's like the war on drugs. Stop it. Uh, it's like the boy racers, the girl racers uh, who are out doing donuts all of the time. Uh, could we not provide a safe environment for them to do it, a uh, stock car racing type of yeah. track or something like yeah. that? I mean, I don't know how much I can comment on that because, you know, Drought Implementation Board, as I've said, it hasn't actually come up at all. I know what you're talking about in a general sense, and that's actually not the way the people who are on the structures of the board mm. approach things. It's not about that. Um, Why not, though? I mean, talk no, no, about no, antisocial behaviour generally, starting fires. Uh, I mean, Halloween every year. I don't know, I think I gave up talking about it on the programme 10 years ago, uh, that instead of every Halloween night uh, that we have these fires besides people's houses, they're going to burn them down and all that, would the council not just organise one big, brilliant Halloween bonfire that young people could attend in safety with fireworks? What I was going to say there before it was interrupted um, was that the way we're working is not about the pushing people out and like labelling people and all that stuff that you're saying there. It is actually about working with communities. It is actually about trying to do things that, um, you know, recognising that there are reasons why young people get involved in this activity. There are reasons why, you know, can we come up with some to. concepts? Oh, no, absolutely. Mm. But also maybe there isn't any other oppor- opportunity or other well, options there as are, well. Like, yeah, you know, obviously there's loads of sports clubs, uh, there's loads of theatres, there's loads of entertainment. Not everybody can access all of that um, stuff. A lot of people you know? can access them, they just don't want to. Um, they're more interested in, in drugs and their mates and the money and the glamour and the high getting stoned is great a lot of people we're working with the community organisations that are on the ground to try and provide different opportunities and to work with Mm. those young people to work with those young Mm. people and you know but can you reach them if you don't embrace them I think that's the point I'm trying to come to I mean if you offered if you offered the uh, drug users in the town a place to meet and take drugs uh, or if you offered to pay their debts if they ran into trouble rather than their dealers burning down their mammy's house uh, would there uh, be a, a chance to speak to people who are falling victim to what can be a scourge they're very big picture things that you're talking about. I mean, we are trying to come up with new ideas. And I suppose this small grant scheme was really about 
asking the community for responses of the things that mm. you're saying there and asking community groups who are working at the cold face they are people who are experiencing mm. the things that mm. you're talking about what would they like to be resourced in their community and they are small grants but just when you're saying there about families so one of the um, projects that we funded there and is actually the Family Addiction Support Network and they have a beautiful project around supporting families of the people mm. who are in addiction those people that you've just spoken about mm. those people who are taking drugs that, mm. that kind mm. of space mm. so supporting those families so that they are strong themselves because it is a very challenging mm. thing to be dealing with. When you're talking about a safe space for people to take drugs, we're delighted the needle exchange, there's a fixed needle exchange service that's just opened last week in the Red Door okay. Project that's been resourced through um, as a result of the yeah. Drahada report. And yeah, that, that was the $50,000 allocated a, a long ago. But, but it isn't a, <laughs> a $50,000 project. Well, that's a different thing. That's actually not what was, that was a kind mm. of a miscommunication around that, but the Red Door Project are now they have a fixed exchange, needle mm. exchange service there which provides a safe space space for mm. people who are in addiction. Mm. And don't get me wrong, I'm not being critical. That's certainly not your fault or the fault of the implementation board. But uh, I, I mean, progress uh, is slow. There's a lot of good work being done. Uh, and uh, the interventions uh, that will result from the grants uh, that you're making available now, uh, I think, could prove to be very valuable in mm. the long term. And I don't think there's any doubt about that. Uh, one of the things we always uh, should be worried about is when children are expelled from school and are left to their own devices. Uh, and uh, that is something I believe uh, that's in train. Yeah, well, actually, we have um, it's, it's a re- early intervention was something that was identified as a key piece, just links in with everything that you've been speaking mm. about there. So in um, and interesting, again, I know I keep talking about this meeting with Darndale, but it was just really mm. good to get kind of two areas yeah. that have been impacted together. Mm. And they were talking about the one of the gaps they had identified was children from fifth class to second year, either on very sedu- reduced hours or right. out of school. And um, <clears throat> we had identified the exact same issue, as you mm. know. Mm. And we're delighted that um, kind of a collaboration of youth services and Drada, we, we got together and again, Faroga, agreed to take the lead on that which was fantastic and the New Choices Project which is for 10 to 16 year olds who are kind of dropping out of the school system it's a really mm. intensive support it's up and running now taking referrals now okay. and so we were, it was great to be able to say to Darndale mm. we've, mm. we've done this but also um, St Oliver Secondary School have another programme as well called Frost which is also for that kind of second year to kind of third, third year group that, that do tend to drop away um, and they're then very very vulnerable for all of the issues that you've raised there Mm. so they've put down so we've two intensive programmes now for children who are kind Mm. of dropping out of the system and just to try and keep them Mm. in the system but supported and just what you're saying there in that non-judgmental way as Mm. well we're not going to go you know we're not slapping you over the head saying don't take drugs but Mm. but actually what we're doing is providing a different potential path okay yeah or embracing embracing uh, exactly embracing what people want to do give them a stock car racing track Give them a graffiti wall, uh, give them uh, a proper uh, council uh, uh, Halloween bonfire um, where it's safe and uh, nobody's house is going to burn. Hopefully, we'll have some updates that may link in with some of the things you're talking about in the coming months. Okay, and and I'm sure you want to hear from people uh, with their ideas as well. Yeah, well, we have our website, um, drawdimplantationboard.ie. We get people who contact us actually quite a lot through social media and all our contact details are on the website. Okay, Grania, thank you indeed for coming in to us uh, this morning. Good to talk to you. Grania Barrel, coordinator with the Drogheda Implementation Board. Michael Reed on LMFM. It's already controversial. It's going to get a lot more controversial. That's the re-wetting of land or what is known as the Nature Restoration Law. Um, on the nature restoration uh, law, it's a proposed European law, as deputies will know. Uh, time is being provided next week uh, to discuss it. 
um, statements in the House. And I do want to make it very clear that it is a proposal at this stage. Uh, I think we all understand the need to uh, protect nature, to restore bio biodiversity loss, uh, to allow nature to regrow. Um, but there are aspects, there are aspects of it that go too far uh, and go very far, in my view, um, particularly if it comes to uh, taking uh, agricultural land out of use for food production. And indeed, in urban areas, there are issues as well where it might become harder, for example, to turn a grass pitch into an all-weather. That's the Taoiseach, Leo Radker, speaking in the Dáil. We'll speak now to Amy Ford, who's the Deputy News Editor with the Irish Farmers Journal. Good morning to you, Amy, and thank you indeed for joining us. Uh, people may have been surprised to hear Leo Radker say that this law may go too far in some circumstances. It's certainly been resisted by the Fine Gael MEPs and indeed Fianna Fáil MEPs, uh, and the targets are massive aren't they? Uh, we're talking about 35% of agricultural land being re-wetted by 2050. Yeah, good morning, Michael, and thanks for, thanks for having me on. Um, there is a lot of talk at the minute, I suppose, and as you've heard there, the Taoiseach and the Dáil, on this proposed nature restoration law. I suppose to set out first, this is proposed, a proposed law. Like any law, this is going to be probably subject to change depending uh, on what's said basically over in Europe. Um, so this is going to have to go through the three stools at the, in, in, in the EU. So the, the European Commission, the European Parliament and the Council of Ministers. Um, they all have their own separate targets on what this law should say. Um, the Commission wants 70% of drained agricultural peatlands to be restored and half of them to be re-wet. Um, the Council, meanwhile, wants 50% of them to be restored and half to be re-wet. So obviously, that'll be lesser again. Um, this is all to be thrashed out in the coming weeks in the EU. I suppose this week that the European Parliament's Agriculture Committee it rejected the proposals outright by 30 votes to 16. And the impact of the vote on the passing of the proposed law will not be known until uh, the Parliament's Environment, Environment Committee and all MEPs vote on the proposals. Those votes are expected over the coming weeks. Um, so it's really coming down to crunch time on this vote. Um, I suppose in terms of the land base, so we estimate, it's estimated because there isn't accurate figures out there, that there's around 330,000 hectares of drained farmed agricultural peatlands. Now what is a drained farmed agricultural peatland? I can hear you asking. Mm -hmm. That's essentially land that was drained or shored up um, and farmers were paid to do this um, back years ago um, by the EU as well as as well as the government um, in order to increase agricultural production on lands that uh, couldn't carry as much stock essentially. Um, so now they're reversing that and they want to go the other way around. Too. How, how, how do you do that? I mean, you don't go in with hoses and uh, the rain will wash away. Uh, so you've got to take measures in order to re-wet that land, don't you? Yes, you do. So uh, there's a good few projects and locally led EIP projects around the country that have started rewetting bogs in, in smaller patches of the country. Um, and what essentially is done is there's a range of measures put in to do this. So you can put in um, kind of like blocks in on drains and streams so that the water doesn't flow as fast or out of it as quick. And that then slows down water flow going out of um, the land and it keeps it basically in, in a section, if that makes sense, mm. uh, in an acre or in a field. And it can um, be done to different degrees as well. I mean, you could be talking about farmland becoming bogland uh, because it's so wet or you could raise the water table by a few centimetres that would uh, allow farming to continue on the land. Yeah, it, it all depends on uh, the intensity of the measures that are carried out and what, what is required, um, what exactly is going to be um, 
you know, the definition of re-wetland in this law is another thing. Like, what what will this all look like um, by 2030, by 2040, by 2050? Because they're the targets that are being set. Uh, certain amounts of land to be re-wet and restored by 2030, and other amount by 2040, and more by 2050. But as I said, the intensity mm. of that will all depend on, on what comes through this law and what, how it's um, viewed. I said at the outset, some people might have been surprised to hear the Taoiseach say that, in his opinion, this European law goes too far at times, uh, probably none more so than the Minister for the Environment, Eamon Ryan. Yeah, um, I think there's a lot going on in, in the coalition this week uh, outside of Rewetton as well. We've seen issues with, with um, taxes there this week being reported and, and tax breaks for, for middle income earners um, and opinion pieces appearing in, in papers from um, ministers and obviously there's there's a lot going on behind the scenes um, there as well but at the end of the day um, it, it's kind of coming up to crunch time and that's probably why it's why it's so to the fore. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is that there is uh, par- European Parliament elections for MEPs next year and like a potential general election in this country um, next year or 2025 um, I think it's the actual deadline for it um, so there's possibly some of that going on as well and we are coming up to obviously the Dáil's uh, summer recess um, in a couple of weeks time um, so that'll be there'll be nothing done over the summer if that makes sense mm-hmm. on these so there's a, a lot of a lot of different moving factors But this is going to be a huge issue isn't it uh, and there'll be a lot of pressure on TDs uh, of every description from farmers uh, who are very much uh, opposed to uh, this law, to re-wetting land, at least as it is proposed. Yeah, in its current form. And um, they, there are, you know, I'm sure MEPs are going to make amendments to what's there and so on, and they'll be voted on. Um, but the the IFA actually hosted a, a number of re-wetting meetings recently um, in, down in, in the Midlands. And it was there was a massive crowd of it. There's another one next week. And there's just, Farmers are just concerned, essentially, that the the carrying capacity of their land for stock, that they might have to reduce stock numbers uh, if their land is to be re-wet, if they have this type of land. And they're worried about that because that's a key part of their income, whether you're a dairy farmer or or a beef farmer. Um, Obviously, because dairy is more profitable at the minute than beef farming, um, if you have drained farm peatlands and you need to re-wet a section of that, um, that's going to reduce your your stock carrying capacity and, and reduce... Um, the amount of money you get from your milk and so on. Um, so you can see why farmers are, are really concerned about it. Okay, Amy, thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. We'll be hearing a lot more uh, on this issue undoubtedly next week. Amy Ford, Deputy News Editor with uh, the Irish Farmers Journal. Uh, a text from Tom saying, great idea, Michael. Let's teach the young people how to fight so when they're out of their heads they can really hurt each other. Like you said you're, yourself, the guy uh, that hit that poor lad in Navin knew how to throw a punch. The GAA clubs is where the money should be going. Places like uh, the St. Nick's Club up in Rathmullen, a club doing great work with local young people. Thanks, Tom, for that. Margaret says, I don't agree with what Damien English did, but there's another question needs to be asked with regard to this matter, and that is, what is the remit of uh, the planning authority in this? Isn't it their role to check every application? Do they have to look up the property register, check sites and maps, and whatever else needs to be checked? How thoroughly are those applications examined by 
the planning authorities. Uh, somebody else says uh, they were refused planning permission to build on the family farm. There was no other house on it apart from the parents. That was over 20 years ago, approximately 2002. Good on LMFM to ask questions of TDs. Is it one rule for themselves and their families, but another for the rest of us? Thank you indeed. Betty Daly says, young people and drugs. Uh, the kids are well educated these days, but they haven't announced of sense. They don't know recreational drugs wreck your health and lives. Thank you, Betty. That's our programme for this week. Maggie McGuire, Research. Chris Murray was in the control tower. I'm Michael. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme on Monday morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie